Core the Bible Podcast number 119, The Biblical Calendar and Sukkot, the Festival of Shelters. Welcome once again to the Core of the Bible Podcast. My name is Steve, and I'm your host in reviewing the key focal points in the biblical narrative. As I mentioned last time, for the next several weeks, we're going to be returning to the biblical calendar, as we are at the recording of these podcasts in the fall season of the biblical year. So having looked at Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, in our last episode, we now come to the third of the fall holiday celebrations, the Festival of Sukkot, or Shelters. This festival is described in Leviticus 23, where it says, Yahweh spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites, the festival of shelters to Yahweh begins on the 15th day of this seventh month and continues for seven days. There's to be a sacred assembly on the first day. You are not to do any daily work. You are to present a food offering to Yahweh for seven days. On the eighth day, you are to hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to Yahweh. It is a solemn assembly, and you are not to do any daily work. You're to celebrate Yahweh's festival on the 15th day of the seventh month for seven days after you have gathered the produce of the land. There will be complete rest on the first day and complete rest on the eighth day. On the first day, you are to take the product of majestic trees, palm fronds, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and rejoice before Yahweh your God for seven days. You are to celebrate it as a festival to Yahweh seven days each year. This is a permanent statute for you throughout your generations. Celebrate it in the seventh month, and you are to live in shelters for seven days. All of the native-born of Israel must live in shelters, so that your generations may know that I made the Israelites live in shelters when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. So the story of Sukkot is based on the story of the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites. During the Exodus, after the Israelites were delivered from Egypt, they were brought out into the desert wilderness on their way to the land that God had promised Abraham. And after receiving the covenant of the Ten Commandments, they were to trust God to take the land. In Deuteronomy 1, it says, Moses said, See, Yahweh your God has placed the land before you. Go up, take possession, as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. Do not fear or be dismayed. However, due to their fear of those dwelling in the land, they chose instead to rebel and to try to revert course back to Egypt. In Numbers 14, we read, All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Moses then recounts what he told them at that time. And this is in Deuteronomy 1. It says, Yet you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of Yahweh your God. And you grumbled in your tents and said, Because Yahweh hates us, he's brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Then Yahweh heard the sound of your words, and he was angry and took an oath, saying, Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his sons I will give the land on which he has set foot, because he has followed Yahweh faithfully. Joshua the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter there. Encourage him, for he will cause Israel to inherit it. 
Because they did not trust God but were stubborn in their hearts, God then forced them to wander in the desert wilderness for 40 years until that rebellious generation all died off. However, he had promised to remain with them to guide and to provide for them. In Exodus 25 verse 8, he says, They are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. So while they were in the wilderness, God still provided food, manna, and water, and whatever else was needed for them to survive. During this time, they lived in tent-like dwellings or shelters, which in Hebrew are called Sukkot. And this was a long-lasting event that Moses encouraged them to recall with each generation. In Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 through 5, we read this. You shall remember all the way which Yahweh your God has led you in the wilderness these forty years, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. Thus you are to know in your heart that Yahweh your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. So we see the 40-year wandering was a discipline process, readying the next generation to be faithful to inherit the land and everything that had been promised to Abraham and the patriarchs. So now let's take a look at some of the symbolism of these activities. So to begin with, these events were to be remembered symbolically by living in Sukkot for a week once a year to remind them of those desert wanderings and the provision of God. These Sukkot, or shelters, served as a reminder not only of the shelters that they lived in during that time, but of the shelter and protection of God during the desert wanderings. For example, in Psalm 31, we're shown how God protects those who take refuge in Him. Psalm 31, verses 19 and 20, it says, How great is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you! In the presence of everyone you have acted for those who take refuge in you. You hide them in the protection of your presence. You conceal them in a shelter, a besuka, from human schemes, from quarrelsome tongues. Also, the prophet Isaiah reveals a majestic vision of prophetic Zion, or the kingdom of God, and how it would have deep ties back to the provision and protection of Yahweh over his people during their desert journeys. In Isaiah 4, verses 5 and 6, it says, Then Yahweh will create a cloud of smoke by day and a glowing flame of fire by night over the entire site of Mount Zion and over its assemblies. For there will be a canopy of the Sukkah over all the glory, and there will be a shelter for shade from heat by day and a refuge and shelter from storm and rain. So, just as God demonstrated He could protect them for those 40 years, He was also revealing how He would provide that same shield and protection over His eternal kingdom. Some additional symbols of this week include the command to rejoice in that which God has provided. This is a harvest festival, after all, sometimes called the Feast of Ingathering, as it is in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 23.16, it says, Also observe the festival of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather your produce from the field. And in Exodus 34.22, it says, Observe the festival of ingathering at the turn of the agricultural year. So the bounty of the fall harvest is brought in and shared among friends and family, kind of like an ancient Thanksgiving. 
Actually, it's believed by some that the American Thanksgiving holiday was based on the festival of Sukkot by the biblically literate pilgrims who were looking for a way to honor God with their survival in the new world. So along with the celebration in the provision of God is the theme of rest, with the first and last days being Sabbaths or days of rest. The rest, after a great harvest, provides a deep sense of satisfaction and joy as it's the completion of all of the hard work that has just occurred throughout the spring and summer months. A seven-day festival indicates a complete cycle, just like the seven days of creation. The fact that it takes place in the seventh month illustrates the Sabbath rest of the eternal kingdom of God, with God ever-dwelling, tabernacle-like, in its midst. Each day was also to have an offering made by fire, which, as we have seen in other studies, as being representative of complete consummation in service to God. Even through the rejoicing and the hard physical work which has been completed, there was always to be a remembrance of who was ultimately responsible for their bounty and their undivided devotion to his purposes. Now, on the subject of offerings, we find that the narrative in Numbers 29 regarding this holiday defines a very detailed and specific number of offerings that were to take place each day, inclusive of bulls and rams and lambs and goats, along with grain and drink offerings. Now, this very specific numeration of sacrificial animals could be a whole study within itself. But what I find interesting is the sheer magnitude of trying to sacrifice, for example, 13 bulls in one day, besides the two rams and the 14 lambs and the goat. Additionally, the number of bulls diminishes each day, beginning at 13 on the first day, and then the next day at 12, 11, and so on, until by the seventh day, they reach seven bulls in number. Therefore, when all the bull sacrifices are added up, you reach 70 bulls sacrificed over seven days, ending with seven bulls on the seventh day. Now, there are many extra-biblical references to the number 70 relating to the totality of the world. And even among ancient Hebrew oral traditions, 70 is considered the number of nations outside of the nation of Israel. At the Jewish site Chabad.org, we find the following explanatory quotes. This one's from Rabbi Avraham Dov Auerbach, and he says, It's the task of the people of Israel to bring the glory of God's kingdom to all of creation, even to the nations of the world. And the offering of the 70 bulls on the festival of Sukkot is in order that the influx of God's kingdom flows to all of the 70 nations. Ilana Misrahi says this, In the times of the Holy Temple, not only did everyone come to the temple to celebrate and wave the lulav and the itrog, the fruit and the branches, but they also came to bring offerings to God. Each day, a number of animals were brought, including bulls. On the first day, 13 bulls were brought, and each day one less bull was brought, totaling 70 bulls. These 70 bulls represent the 70 nations of the world. And this is why, according to rabbinic sources, that only one bull is sacrificed on the eighth day of the festival, as it represents the sacrifice for the one remaining nation, Israel. And we'll talk more about the eighth day significance in our next episode. Now, from my perspective, considering there were 70 bulls over seven days, I was also reminded of Peter's inquiry of Yeshua as to how many times we should forgive those who sin against us. In Matthew 18, It says, Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? 
I tell you, not as many as seven, Yeshua replied, but 70 times seven. It seems to be such an odd way of phrasing this famous response, 70 times seven. I wouldn't be dogmatic about this, but could it be that Yeshua was hinting at the responsibility of believers to mimic the totality of forgiveness that Yahweh annually offers the nations of the world in the 70 bulls over seven days? In this sense, 70 times seven would be indicative of complete forgiveness of everyone, something which also very closely aligned with the mission of Messiah in this world. Let's continue to look at some other aspects. In Leviticus 23, verse 40, it says, On the first day you are to take the product of majestic trees, palm fronds, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and rejoice before Yahweh your God for seven days. Now this aspect of the holiday week has a certain meaning among modern Jews, as they believe that this verse relates to a specific group of four species of plants that they're commanded to worship with each day. And these consist of the following. The lulav, which is a ripe, green, closed frond from a date palm tree. The itrog, a citron fruit with a thick rind and a sweet fragrance. Hadas, which are three myrtle branches with leaves. And the arava, two willow branches with long, narrow leaves. There is, in fact, ancient extra-biblical historical evidence that this rejoicing with the fruit and branches was a practice that to outsiders appeared to be a revelry similar to that of honoring Bacchus, the god of wine, or other pagan deities. An example is the Greek philosopher Plutarch relating the following in his text Table Talk. And this is the quote. It says, First of all, he said, The time and character of the greatest, most sacred holiday of the Jews clearly befit Dionysus. For when they celebrate their so-called fast at the height of the vintage, they set out tables of all sorts of fruits under their tents and huts, plated for the most part of vines and ivy. They call the first of the days Booth. A few days later, they celebrate another festival, called openly, no longer through obscure hints, a festival of Bacchus. This festival of theirs is a sort of bearing of branches and of thyrsi, or rods, in which they enter the temple carrying the thyrsi. What they do after entering, we do not know, but it is probable that what they are doing is a Bacchic revelry, for in fact they use little trumpets to invoke their god, as do the Argives at their Dionysia. Unquote. Now, while Plutarch may be interpreting the actions of the ancient Jews in light of the pagan Greek gods, it is evident that there was a celebratory mood among the Jews during the time of Sukkot and the bearing of the branches into the temple area. The waving of branches was an act of celebration, much like waving a team flag at a sporting event might be today. And today it's customary to wave these four species in a specific fashion each day of Sukkot, as this waving becomes a representation of rejoicing with the fruit and branches. It's considered to be an exhibition of praise to Yahweh for his good provision in the land that he had promised them. Now, waving branches as an act of celebration and acclaim should not be unfamiliar to believers in Messiah, as a similar practice was bestowed upon Yeshua as he entered Jerusalem on a donkey in fulfillment of prophetic texts. In John 12, 
we read the next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Yeshua was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. And they kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So besides this celebratory aspect of the waving of the branches, this command in Leviticus comes on the heels of the previous verse, which states to celebrate the holiday for seven days after you have gathered the produce of the land. And this produce of the land would naturally include the fruit of the various fruit-producing trees of the land as well. But the branches and fruit also have prophetic overtones for the future of Israel as God's eternal kingdom as well. In Hosea 14, we read, Israel, return to Yahweh your God, for you have stumbled in your iniquity. And it says, I will heal their apostasy. I will freely love them, for my anger will have turned from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily and take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His new branches will spread, and his splendor will be like the olive tree, his fragrance like the forest of Lebanon. The people will return and live beneath his shade. They will grow grain and blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. Now, Messiah Yeshua captures some of this prophetic imagery in his parable of the mustard seed. In Mark 4, he says, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable can we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed that, when sown upon the soil, is the smallest of all the seeds on the ground. And, when sown, it comes up and grows taller than all the garden plants and produces large branches so that the birds of the sky can nest in its shade. And ultimately, he claims to be the very source of the true branches and fruit in which believers can rejoice for all time. John 15:5, he famously said, I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If this meaning is then layered on to the celebration of Sukkot at this time of year, there's an additional reason for rejoicing in the living and fruit-producing branches of the kingdom of God, harvesting the nations of the world for Yahweh. Next, let's look at living in the shelters. In Leviticus 23, it says, You are to live in shelters for seven days. All the native-born of Israel must live in shelters. I think it's interesting how a distinction appears to be made between the native-born and those who are resident aliens in the land. It says only the native-born are required to live in shelters during the festival. By contrast, in the instructions for the Passover feast, it's stated that if the resident alien desires to keep the Passover, they and their households have to be circumcised. In Exodus 12.48, says if an alien resides among you and wants to observe Yahweh's Passover, every male in his household must be circumcised, and then he may participate. He will become like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat it. But here at Sukkot, there's no such caveat. It's almost as if this command is specifically for those descendants of the generation which wandered in the desert, as the resident alien would have no connection to that event and no need for the discipline of heart that that generation struggled with. God was very clear when he told the Israelites the reason that they should reenact this scenario of living in shelters for a week each year. He said, so that your generations may know that I made the Israelites live in shelters when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. And that's Leviticus 23, 43. 
And it's not that the resident aliens could not learn from that event, just that they were not required to live in the Sukkot for that week, even though they were still invited to participate in the festivities. Moses had instructed them, you're to celebrate the festival of shelters for seven days when you've gathered in everything from your threshing floor and wine press. Rejoice during your festival, you, your son, your daughter, your male and female slave, as well as the Levite, the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow within your gates. And that's from Deuteronomy 16. So this command to live in shelters appears to be more directed toward the physical descendants of that generation that was forced to wander in the wilderness as an echo of their ancestral propensity towards stubbornness of heart. To live in shelters for a week would remind them to never again engage in that level of disobedience to the commands of God in establishing his kingdom. Now, probably the best applications of this biblical festival can be drawn from the Deuteronomy 8 passage that we read earlier, a passage where Moses is recounting to the Israelites everything he has ministered to them over the past 40 years in the wilderness, just before they enter the land of Canaan. Deuteronomy 8, beginning in verse 2, it says, You shall remember all the way which Yahweh your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. So they were to be reminded that even in their unfaithfulness and stubbornness of heart, God still chose to live among them and to lead them safely through the wilderness and to provide for all their needs. Moses continues, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Through this process, God was determining what was really in their hearts, demonstrated by how faithfully they were to keep his commands. It's one thing to believe what's right, and it's another thing to show how strong the belief is by what is done. The Apostle James famously stated this truth in James 2.18. He says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. He says, Well, show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. See, this disciplinary process of the desert experience was more for the Israelites to learn about their own hearts and for them to demonstrate what it is they really wanted in their relationship with God. Moses continues in Deuteronomy, He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. The miraculous provision of food during their wilderness journeys was because God had promised he would take care of them. If he declared they would have food, they would have food, even if it was miraculous bread from heaven. But it was not the bread that they should focus on, but the faithfulness of God. The bread was a demonstration that they should honor His words because He is a faithful God. His words were the true source of their life. Moses continues, Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. There were no clothing stores and no medical facilities in that desert wasteland. Forty years is a long time to go wandering about in the same clothes and not to have major physical problems due to all of that travel on foot. And yet, once again, God miraculously provided for them. Moses concludes with, Thus you are to know in your heart that Yahweh your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. And here's where the rubber meets the road, where the real need for remembering those forty years would come into play. They were being disciplined because they had rejected God's command early on to take the land. 
Because they feared the Amorites more than they trusted Yahweh, he caused them to wander in the desert until all of the stubborn generation died off. Only then could they enter the land of Canaan. Discipline is real and hard to endure, but it bears fruit in the end. Hebrews 12 verses 9 through 11 says, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. In Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12, it says, My son, do not reject the discipline of Yahweh or loathe his reproof. For whom Yahweh loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. So if the week of Sukkot was to be a reminder of those 40 years in the wilderness, then these are the things that they were to be reminded of. It was to show them how stubbornness of heart has consequences, even though Yahweh was still willing to be faithful. And even in the most trying of circumstances, God was able to provide for them when they recognized that they truly lived by every word that God had spoken. These were the lessons that were to be handed down to each generation at the annual week of Sukkot. So let's finish up today with some fulfillment and application for today. Just as the Israelites wandered for 40 years in the desert wilderness, there was also a 40-year duration between Messiah and the destruction of the temple and nation in 70 AD. And this has been suggested to be a second exodus, a calling out of a faithful remnant from among the unfaithful of the corrupted religiosity of carnal Judaism, which held its man-made traditions and rituals above the word of God. So if we're to carry the themes of the first exodus with Moses into this second exodus beginning with the ministry of Messiah, we can conclude the nation of Israel in the first century was being disciplined during this time for rejecting God's promised kingdom, which Yeshua announced during his ministry. Yeshua had taken them to the brink of the land so they could see the kingdom of God for themselves. But they wavered in faith and rejected his message, just as Caleb and Joshua's report was denied. They were choosing instead to hold tight to the principles of Egypt, the political world and their traditions, rather than recognize the presence of God among his people to lead them into the spiritual land of promise, or Zion. Yet, just as the protege of Moses, Joshua, whose Hebrew name is Yeshua, caused Israel to inherit the physical land, another Yeshua caused them to inherit the spiritual land. Those who were faithful, the disciples, and those who believed in Messiah, were provided for with supernatural gifts of the Spirit of God and with hope for the soon-coming consummation of the national promises. The faithful were brought into the kingdom while that rebellious generation perished. Even for believers today, just like the resident aliens who were not required to live in Sukkot for that week, we're still invited to be involved in the memorial of this festival time of our spiritual ancestors and recognize and take to heart some of these great truths for ourselves. Firstly, we can be reminded that if we're disobedient to God's commands, God still provides for our needs while he may be disciplining us for our own good. Secondly, as a harvest festival, it teaches us to be thankful for all that God has provided us each year and to rejoice in God's ongoing harvest of faithful believers everywhere. 
And finally, as a time of rejoicing, we're to celebrate the establishment and growth of the vine branches and fruit of the kingdom of God until it grows to fill the earth. So as we view this seasonal moed or appointed time of Sukkot, we can catch a glimpse of its renewed nature and purpose in the symbolism of the core of the Bible parameters. Having received the Ten Commandments and the Covenant of God, the Israelites were to establish the kingdom of God on the earth in the Promised Land. And just as Yeshua taught, this was to be a kingdom based on the structure of those Ten Commandments as both a near and present reality. Now, there were many dangers in the desert that the Israelites had to be aware of and avoid. So this was a life where vigilance would be required of those who sought to participate. And the believers in Messiah would be set apart and holy, trusting God for all of their needs, just as their forefathers had to do in the desert wilderness. And they were to operate with God's characteristics of forgiveness and compassion, demonstrating that they are the children of God. Well, I hope these studies on the fall festivals of the biblical calendar are bringing you some concepts and ideas to meditate on and to study out further on your own. But remember, if you have thoughts or comments that you'd like to explore further with me, feel free to email me at coreofthebible at gmail.com. And if you happen to be listening on YouTube, please leave your thoughts and comments below. And if you like what you're hearing and want to help spread the core of the Bible message, then please like this video as it will then be recommended to more and more people. And be sure to visit coreofthebible.org for all of the podcasts on our podcast page there. Once again, thanks for joining me today. As always, I hope to be invited back into your headphones in another episode to come. Take care. Take care.